The term syphilis was introduced by the Italian poet and physician Girolamo Fracastoro and refers to a shepherd named Syphilis who gets cursed with a hideous skin disease after offending the Greek god Apollo. Since then, many famous historical figures have been afflicted with syphilis, including Vincent van Gogh, Wolfgang Mozart, Oscar Wilde, and Friedrich Nietzsche. Al Capone, the infamous American gangster, was noted to have developed early dementia and confusion secondary to neurosyphilis. Now that we know a bit about the history of syphilis, it is time to discuss the disease as it applies to our practice today. Today, our patient has syphilis and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast written by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is titled Syphilis and the Imitation Game. All right, time for a minute microbiology. Syphilis is caused by Treponema pallidum. It is important to note that there are three other subtypes of Treponema species that include Treponema endemicum, Pertinu, and Keratium that cause the non-venereal mucocutaneous diseases Bajel, Yaws, and Pinta, respectively. Treponema species belong to the order Spirocatalis, which, as the name suggests, have a helical shape with tightly wound spirals. This unique structure not only allows the treponema species to move in a corkscrew motion through mucous membranes, but also minimizes antigen exposure on its surface, allowing it to evade immune recognition. Interestingly, identifying treponema species has long been challenging due to its small size, making it difficult to visualize by direct microscopy. A technique called dark field microscopy was therefore relied upon as a tool to identify syphilis until the recent development of serologic testing. Syphilis is a sexually transmitted infection that spreads through direct contact with infected mucocutaneous lesions, such as chancres, mucus patches, or condyloma lata. These lesions are highly infectious with an efficacy of transmission of approximately 30%. Vertical transmission from mother to child can also occur. Following inoculation, treponema pallidum enters the body through breaks in the epithelium and disseminates via hematogenous and lymphatic spread with a particular predilection for liver, skin, mucous membranes, vasculature, bones, and the central nervous system. The incubation period for this organism is typically 21 days, and the clinical presentation can be quite variable. All right, so now that we've talked about the basic microbiology and transmission, let's talk about the approach to diagnosis and management of syphilis. Your first step in any patient encounter will be to assess whether your patient is stable or not. What is their GCS? Are their ABCs stable? What are their vitals? Once your patient is stable, you can move forward with your assessment. Syphilis is often called the great imitator due to the breadth of its clinical presentation. Diagnosing syphilis requires a high index of clinical suspicion and an understanding of disease progression, as this guides the history and physical exam. When suspecting syphilis, it is critical to inquire about risk factors, including high-risk sexual behavior, such as multiple sexual partners, men who have sex with men, unprotected intercourse, and a history of sexually transmitted infections, including HIV. Clinically, syphilis is divided into early and late disease. 
Early syphilis typically occurs weeks to months after the initial exposure and is divided into primary and secondary syphilis. It can also present as a clinically asymptomatic early latent disease that is often incidentally detected by serology within one year of possible exposure. If patients are untreated during this stage, they can progress to a late latent disease or develop major complications over a period of 1 to 30 years. This is referred to as tertiary syphilis. Two important points to understand about the progression of syphilis is that first, not all individuals progress through each stage sequentially, and second, neurosyphilis, which is a common manifestation of tertiary syphilis, can occur at any stage of infection. Now, primary syphilis presents as a papular ulcerated chancre at the site of genital trauma with associated regional lymphadenopathy. Due to the painless nature of these lesions and occurrence on the penis, vagina, anus, or posterior oropharynx, these lesions frequently go unrecognized. Even if untreated, the chancre resolves in three to six weeks. A thorough genital, rectal, and oral exam, as well as assessment of regional lymphadenopathy, is important if suspecting disease at this stage. Untreated primary syphilis results in systemic dissemination of the bacteria and development of secondary syphilis, typically four to 10 weeks after the chancre. Symptoms of secondary syphilis can be nonspecific and include malaise, headache, fever, pharyngitis, diffuse lymphadenopathy, arthralgia, and weight loss. In addition, a symmetric reddish-brown maculopapular rash involving the entire body with notable involvement of palms and soles is common. Broad, flat lesions called condyloma lata can also develop on the genital surfaces. Finally, although uncommon, patients in this stage can develop systemic complications, including hepatitis, syphilitic glomerulonephritis, anterior uveitis, arthritis, synovitis, and moth-like alopecia. Therefore, clinical assessment for secondary syphilis entails screening for multi-system involvement on history and performing a thorough head-to-toe physical exam, paying particular attention to the skin, mucosa, and genital tract. Lastly, although now uncommon due to widespread use of antibiotics, the most feared complication of syphilis is the tertiary stage, which typically occurs 10 to 30 years after the initial exposure. Neurologic involvement ranging from meningitis to parenchymal neurosyphilis is the most common complication seen in this tertiary stage. Syphilitic meningitis typically occurs within the first year of infection, with classic symptoms including fever, headache, neck stiffness, photophobia, seizures, and frequent cranial nerve palsies. In contrast, meningovascular syphilis can mimic stroke-like symptoms with hemiparesis, aphasia, and seizures. The two major parenchymal forms of neurosyphilis include general paresis and tabes torsalis. General paresis is a chronic meningoencephalitis resulting in psychiatric symptoms such as memory loss, personality changes, paranoia, and confusion, as well as neurologic abnormalities like hyperreflexia, dysarthria, and tremors. Tabes dorsalis involves invasion and demyelination of the dorsal spinal column, resulting in impaired vibration and proprioception, as well as ataxia, hyporeflexia, weakness, and urinary incontinence. 
Pupillary abnormalities with reduced constriction to light, but not accommodation, termed Argyle-Robertson pupils, are classically seen at this stage. Non-neurologic complications of tertiary syphilis include cardiac involvement and gummatous disease. Cardiovascular syphilis classically presents with thoracic aortic aneurysm, with associated aortic regurgitation. This is a direct consequence of end arteritis of the vasovasorum and scarring of the aortic wall. Gummatous disease is a granulomatous inflammation resulting in nodules and ulcerative lesions that can occur anywhere, including skin, bones, and internal organs. On to our workup. Given the variability in presentation, the threshold to test for syphilis should be low and offered to all patients considered to be high risk, including those with compatible symptoms, those who have engaged in high-risk sexual behaviors, sexually active men who have sex with men, individuals with HIV infection, those living in endemic areas, and as part of routine screening in pregnancy. Baseline investigations include a CBC, electrolyte panel, creatinine, and liver enzymes and liver function testing to assess for systemic involvement. Furthermore, concurrent screening for other sexually transmitted infections, including HIV, chlamydia, gonorrhea, and hepatitis B and C, should be offered to all patients who screen positive for syphilis. Historically, the diagnosis of syphilis was made by examining exudates of lesions using dark-filled microscopy to directly visualize treponema pallidum. Diagnosis today is made with serology, there are two types of serologic tests available, non-treponemal and treponemal-specific tests. The non-treponemal antibody tests measure IgG and IgM antibodies to antigens, released both by damaged host cells and the treponemes. Commonly used non-treponemal assays include the Rapid Plasma Reagent, or RPR, and Venereal Disease Research Laboratory, or VDRL. Although these tests are nonspecific, the antibody titer correlates with disease activity and can be used to both diagnose and monitor response to therapy. False positive results, however, can be seen due to biologic cross-reactivity with other conditions, including viral infections, autoimmune disorders, malignancy, and pregnancy. In contrast, treponemal tests detect antibodies specific to treponemal antigens. Commonly used assays include fluorescent treponemal antibody absorption, or FTA-ABS, treponema pallidum particle agglutination, or TPPA, and treponema pallidum enzyme immunoassay, or TP-EIA, with the latter becoming the more commonly used assay. These tests have a higher specificity, but are unable to distinguish between past and active infection as these typically remain positive for life following seroconversion. Most centers now begin with a treponemal test to assess for any evidence of current or past infection. If positive, the non-treponemal test is then done to assess for active disease. Discordance due to positive treponemal test but negative non-treponemal titer is usually a result of early syphilis, late latent disease, or past treatment. In most cases, a positive treponemal-specific test warrants treatment unless a clear history of treatment exists. Lastly, all patients with suspected neurosyphilis, as well as those with cardiac or gummatous disease, should undergo a lumbar puncture. 
CSF findings in syphilis include lymphocytic pleocytosis, high protein, and low glucose in approximately 50% of the patients. CSF VDRL is the most specific test for neurosyphilis, and a positive test is diagnostic and necessitates treatment. If negative, but the clinical suspicion is high, CSF FTA-ABS can be done as it has a high sensitivity. A negative test in this case makes the diagnosis of neurosyphilis highly unlikely. Any positive diagnosis of syphilis is reportable to public health and is often automatically reported by the testing laboratory. It is important to obtain consent prior to testing for this reason. Onto our treatment. Fortunately, treponema pallidum is exceptionally sensitive to beta-lactam antibiotics, and continuous exposure to high levels of penicillin is needed to target the slow growth rate of the organism. Parental administration of penicillin G is the gold standard for management of syphilis. Distinguishing between early and late syphilis is critical in guiding treatment. Patients with primary or secondary syphilis or early latent disease are treated with a singular intramuscular dose of 2.4 million units of benzathine penicillin G. In contrast, patients with late latent infection and tertiary syphilis without neurologic involvement are given three weekly intramuscular doses. Patients with neurosyphilis should be treated with two weeks of intravenous aqueous penicillin G in order to achieve high CSF levels of penicillin. This is followed by a single dose of intramuscular benzathine pen G to complete the three-week course needed to also treat latent disease. In patients with a true penicillin allergy, doxycycline is the preferred alternate agent for management of early and late syphilis. The one exception is in pregnancy, as doxycycline is teratogenic. In pregnant women, penicillin allergy testing and monitored desensitization is preferred for the management of syphilis. Appropriate monitoring and counseling is also necessary during the management of syphilis. All patients should be counseled on safe sex practices and appropriate barrier protection use. Upon initiation of treatment, patients should also be advised to monitor for the Jarish-Herxheimer reaction that typically occurs within the first 24 hours of treatment. This is a febrile reaction seen in 10-35% to of patients that is thought to be related to the lysis of spirochettes and release of inflammatory cytokines with treatment. Adequate response to treatment is defined as a fourfold decline in the non-treponemal titer from baseline. For example, a decline of RPR titer from 1 to 32 to 1 to 8 is considered an acceptable response to therapy. Antibody levels should be monitored at 6 and 12 months in those with early syphilis, as an adequate response is seen within one year post-treatment. Those with late syphilis should be monitored at 6, 12, and 24 months, as a delayed response to treatment may be seen. Individuals with HIV co-infection often require more frequent monitoring and should be referred to an infectious disease consultant. Ultimately, given the ability of syphilis to imitate many disease processes, the most important aspect in the diagnosis and management of syphilis is recognizing the risk factors for infection and always thinking about syphilis as a possible etiology for the patient's presentation. All right, on to our medicine minute. 
The infamous Tuskegee study of untreated syphilis in the Negro male was a trial conducted by the U.S. Public Health Service between 1932 and 1972 to prospectively study the natural evolution and consequences of syphilis. The 600 impoverished African-American participants of the trial were told that the study would last six months and was aimed at treating, quote, bad blood, unquote. They were also offered remuneration, including medical care, hot meals, and burial insurance. However, the trial lasted 40 years, during which the participants were studied and underwent invasive testing, including lumbar punctures. Most importantly, despite the discovery that penicillin effectively cured syphilis, researchers intentionally withheld life-saving treatment from the study participants. The subsequent revelation of these unethical study failures in 1972 led to dramatic changes in medical bioethics and clinical trial regulations around the world. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled Syphilis and the Imitation Game. This episode was written by Dr. Nishal Ranganath, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Nishma Singhal, infectious disease specialist, and Dr. Andrew Chung, internal medicine specialist. This episode was recorded and produced by Alison Lai. The Internet Work series was created by Alison Lai and is developed by Zara Morali and Leah Karianopoulos. Theme song by Lakshman Vizantha Mohan. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe at wherever you get your podcasts. As always, there is an associated infographic and resources at our website at www.theinternetwork.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.